So why don't I pray, and then we'll get into talking about the wisdom of suffering today. Um, Father, thank you so much for your word, Lord, and thanks that um, actually you promised that if we, uh, if we hear it and if we obey it, it actually gives us joy. And so I would pray that we'd experience that even as we talk about suffering today, Lord. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, a number of years ago, I mean a long time ago, I just finished college, and I was, um, to, to say it lightly, I was pretty much almost homeless. Um, I had no job. I had no prospects of a job. Uh, I was actually living by my parents' grace. Every night I would blow up an air mattress in their living room uh, in their small townhouse because they were also looking after my grandmother. So the, the only place I could sleep at night was on an air mattress in the living room. That's what I would do every night. And I was in this situation uh, for quite a few months. And I remember I was with a friend of mine who also, he had just graduated from college. He also studied to go into ministry. He actually got a job uh, in ministry. And we were driving around in his car. I can't remember why, but we're driving somewhere. And I was telling him how much I was suffering at the moment. I was like, man, this is just really hard. I feel like there's no prospects for anything. And, you know, I'm really struggling financially. Like, I just don't have any money. I don't have any income. Um, I, I don't know what I'm going to do. And I was just, you know, just really explaining my suffering to him. And uh, that week, earlier that week, uh, there was a hurricane um, down in Florida. And uh, he said to me, well, at least you didn't lose everything in a hurricane. And I thought, and I, you know, and I recognized there was a horrible hurricane in Florida this week. And I just remember thinking, yeah, but my suffering is suffering too. That what I'm going through is also suffering. Um, and it may not be to the degree of somebody who's just lost everything in a hurricane, but, but my suffering is real suffering too. And I'm actually feeling it. I'm actually going through it. And uh, I thought about that for a long time afterwards, and I, and I thought, you know, whether you, whether you lost your entire house or you lost your job, whether you're sick with cancer or sick with the flu, human suffering is still human suffering, and the person that is suffering still feels the pain of that suffering. And so sure, there are greater degrees of suffering and lesser degrees of suffering, but no matter what, like, suffering is still real, and the pain that you feel in the suffering is still real pain. And what we've been talking about over the last three weeks is, is wisdom. We've talked about the wisdom of today, which is, you know, trying to say, like, what we do today impacts who we become tomorrow. That's the wisdom of today. We talked about the wisdom of fear, and that is to fear the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And when, last week, we talked about the wisdom of friendship. And today, oh, joy of joys, uh, we're talking about the wisdom of suffering. And suffering and wisdom, they're actually smashed together so often in the Bible that it's almost impossible to talk about wisdom without talking about suffering. The two go together so often. And the book of Job, where our reading came from, is this entire book about suffering and wisdom, the whole thing, suffering and wisdom. And here's what I think you find if you look at what the Bible has to say about suffering and wisdom together. That you need wisdom in order to handle your suffering. Otherwise, your suffering will overcome you. And so you have to have wisdom to handle your suffering. That's one thing the Bible says about wisdom and suffering. The other thing it says is that if you handle your suffering with wisdom, you get more wisdom. You become more wise. Now remember our definition of wisdom. It's knowing the right thing to do and doing it over and over and over and over again, uh, even and especially when it's hard. And if we were to drill that down even further, we've been saying wisdom is this. You can go to the next slide. Wisdom is persevering in doing what you learn from Jesus. Wisdom is persevering in doing what you learn from Jesus. And so that's what wisdom is. But here's a question I've always struggled with when it comes to wisdom and suffering. 
Why is it that when you're suffering, you know, when, when you're in the midst of pain, of weakness, of tribulation, of uncertainty, whatever word you want to use for it, why when we're suffering does wisdom seem so elusive? Why when we're going through pain does wisdom see, seem impossible? It seems far away. Did you find that? That when you're in the midst of suffering, you often don't know what to do. You don't know how to handle it. You, you don't know where to go with it. It's almost like the pain of your suffering creates like a barrier between you and wisdom. And what Job 28 does is it actually helps us answer that question. And actually, if you can get wisdom in the midst of your suffering, isn't that worth more than gold? Isn't that better than all the precious gems you could find? That's what Job 28 says. Look, look again with me at Job 28, verse 15. It says, it cannot be bought with the finest gold, nor can its price be weighed out in silver. And then it goes on to compare wisdom to every precious gem you can think of. Ruby, topaz, jasper, the one that nobody can say that even in the reading, I can't say it. And I love that the Bible says this. Because think of a time when you've suffered. Wouldn't you have been willing to pay anything to have wisdom, to know what to do? You would have paid anything. Wouldn't you have paid anything to know why you're suffering? To get the answer? Well, that's what we're going to see today as we look at the wisdom of suffering. And, and so my guess is either you're feeling it now, you're suffering now, that you know there's a wisdom that you need and suffering seems to be in the way, or, or maybe there's someone who you love who's suffering, they're going through it. And here's what we'll see as we look at this last topic on wisdom, the wisdom of suffering. Four things. So where to find wisdom in the midst of suffering. Secondly, what to do with the pain of our suffering. Thirdly, what suffering actually accomplishes in us. And then fourthly, what suffering accomplished for us. So where to find it, what to do with the pain, what it accomplishes in us, and what it accomplished for us. And so first, where do you find this wisdom in the midst of suffering? And the, the, the book of Job teaches three things about finding wisdom, uh, where to look for it. And by the way, the book of Job, it's about a man named Job who he's morally upright. He's as moral as it gets. Uh, he has a good family. He's a good family man. He's a pillar in the community. Essentially, he's as good a person as anyone could ever be. And yet, he has everything he has, everything he owns, his health, his family, his crops, his herds, his money, everything is taken from him suddenly, just suddenly gone. And the image here is of a person who, by all standards, he, he actually deserves suffering the least. And yet he seems to suffer the most. This book is about someone's whole world turning upside down overnight. And then the entire book of Job is him wrestling over this suffering and the book of Job, it teaches us three things about finding wisdom. It actually shows us two places not to look, and then one place, actually the one and only place that you'll find it. Um, so look again in our passage, verse 12. It says, but where can wisdom be found? Where does understanding dwell? And then skip down to verse 20. It asks the same questions again. Where then does wisdom come from? Where does understanding dwell? And isn't that the question deep down, like when you're suffering, when you're going through it, isn't that the question deep down? And so point one, where is it? Where is the suffering? Well, first two places not to look. And the first place not to look is your friends, 
Now, I recognize if you were here last week, you're like, wait a minute, last week you told me that having friends is what gives you wisdom, and now you're telling me, don't go to your friends for wisdom. Yes, I am. That's what I'm telling you. Um, it really does seem funny to say that. But these four friends, so Job ends up coming across uh, four friends, three of them through almost the entirety of the book, and then a fourth one shows up at the end. Um, and these four friends, by the way, they're not the kinds of friends we were talking about last week. Because remember what a good friend is? A good friend is one who cares for you. A good friend is one who joins you in your suffering. A good friend is actually one who points you to truth about who God is and who you are in light of that. That's what a good friend does. But these four friends who show up in Job, they don't, that's not what they do. Instead, they, they just become Job's accusers. And so they keep trying to point out all the reasons that he might be suffering. Job is chapter after chapter of his friends trying to find the reason for his suffering. And for the most part, they, they're pointing to his morality. They say, they say, hey, it's your morality. You know, they come up and, with and they accuse him of sin after sin after sin. And they just point out, you did this and you did that and you did this and you did that. But remember, Job is morally upright. He's a good family man. He's a pillar of the community. And actually, he's innocent of all the things that they accuse him of. And so one of the main points of the book of Job, uh, one of the main points that it does is it, it makes about Job's friends is that human reason, human reason will not lead you to wisdom. It's not going to lead you to the wisdom you're looking for when it comes to suffering. And just think about that for a minute, because what do we always try to do in our suffering? What do we always do? We try to reason it out. Oh, the reason I'm suffering, it must be this. You know, we, we, we try to find a reason for everything. You know, there has to be a reason, a lesson to learn, a task, task to accomplish, a way for us, you know, we're part of some grander plan, and, and that's what this is. And yes, in a minute, we'll see that suffering often does accomplish something uh, in us, but not always, and certainly not for Job. You actually get to the end of the book of Job, and Job never gets told the reason for his suffering. It's really frustrating. You read the book, and, and you know as the reader, because you're told at the beginning, but Job doesn't know this. And you get to the end, and it's like, it, Job never finds out why he suffered. And maybe that's your suffering. Maybe that describes the suffering that, that you've gone through, or you've had in the past. It's certainly been some of the suffering I've experienced in life, where, where you suffer, and you, you, never, you never learn why. You never know why. More on that in a minute, but for now, what the book of Job is saying is wisdom is not found in reasoning it out. Finding the answer to the why, why are you suffering, is not where wisdom is found. That's why you don't look to your friends. But there's a second place wisdom is not found, and we see that one in our passage for today, Job 28. And so the second place you won't find it is in technology. It's in modern advancement. Uh, look at Job 28, verse 1. There, there is a mine for silver and a place where gold is refined. Iron is taken from the earth and copper smelted from ore. Mortals put an end to the darkness. They search out the farthest recesses for one of the blackest, for ore in the blackest darkness. Far from human dwellings, they cut a shaft in places untouched by human feet. Far from other people, they dangle and sway. Now, what he's talking about, he's talking about mining. And he's talking about all this advancement that they've made. They can now like, bore into the earth, and they cut a shaft, and they, they hang on a rope to get down under the ground. He's talking about technology here. 
Verse 9, people assault the flinty rock with their hands and lay bare the roots of the mountains. They tunnel through the rock, their eyes see all its treasures. They search the sources of the rivers and bring hidden things to light. If this were written today, it wouldn't be about mining, it'd be about computers, it'd be about the internet. It'd be about space travel. And how do they do all this? It's technology. And what this is saying is that we have all sorts of technology to dig into the earth to find gold and copper and iron. I have a friend who, she's a, a doctorate in, in geology, and she used to work for a, a gold mining company in Australia. And they would send her out to these fields, and she would have to, to find out if there's gold in those hills over there. That was her job, and she could figure it out. She could tell them with accuracy it's there. Dig right there. And so by the use of technology, we can fill our homes and our lives with all sorts of treasures. But notice what it says now. So it's talked about all this technology, all these treasures that you can get. And then verse 12, but where then can wisdom be found? If we can go into the darkest places under the earth where no foot has ever gone and we can find treasure, why can't we find wisdom? Where is it? No mortal comprehends its worth. We talked about that. But then notice the last part of verse 13. It cannot be found in the land of the living. Now that is an incredibly profound statement. And do you get what that's saying? It's saying that no matter how far technology, you know, human understanding of the universe, no matter how far we go at harnessing the power of technology, it will never give us the wisdom we need to get through our suffering. The best it can do is alleviate the pain of suffering for a time, but it doesn't give us wisdom. And when he says that wisdom cannot be found in the land of the living, he's saying actually we have to go outside the earth in which we live and outside the, the universe in which our planet dwells. And do you remember our drawings from a, a couple of weeks ago? I just really like showing off my drawings, so I'm going to show them to you again. But here's what this is getting at. These, these first two that are on the screen here, one, that, you know, the one that has the, the sort of black above it, that's saying that everything that we see, taste, touch, feel, hear, that's it. That's all there is to the world. That's it. And so the person who lives in that frame, that way of thinking, they're going to dig. They're going to dig till they find it. Uh, the, the other one, that, that's one, oh, go, back, go back, there we go. The other one that's up there uh, with the purple clouds and everything, that's a person who says, yeah, I think there's something out there, but it's impersonal. There's an impersonal force, and, and maybe I can go to that, and maybe the universe will show me one day what's going on. You've probably overheard it just as I have, sitting in a coffee shop, somebody you know, complaining about something, and their friend says, oh, the universe must just be against you right now. That's that way of thinking. The wisdom isn't found in either of those places. It's not found here on the earth in technology. It's not found in an impersonal force. But notice where wisdom is found. Now you can go to the next one. We can't reason it out. It's not techno technological advancement. It's not human capability. Wisdom is found in God and in God alone. And that's what this third image represents. It's, it's a, a, a world that we live in where God is sovereign over all things, that he sits on a throne. Look at verse 20. Where then does wisdom come from? Where does understanding dwell? Verse 21, it's hidden from the eyes of every living thing. It's, it's even concealed from the birds. I love this picture. The birds are the creatures that fly above everything. They can see it all at once, but they can't find it. And then verse 22, even death and destruction, they call wisdom a rumor. Like we heard about it one time. We don't know if it's real. And so where does wisdom come from? Where does it dwell? How do we find it? Verse 23 God understands the way to it. 
and he alone knows where it dwells. For he views the ends of the earth and sees everything under the heavens. And by the way, why can't wisdom come from an impersonal force? Look at verse 25. Look at these words in here. When he established the force of the wind and measured out the waters, when he made a decree for the rain and a path for the thunderstorm, then he looked at wisdom and appraised it. He confirmed it and tested it. You see those words? There's establishing, there's measuring, there's making, there's decreeing, there's looking, appraising, confirming, testing. All of these are things that cannot be done by an impersonal force. They must be done by a being with personhood, a being with agency. And so you see, wisdom has to come from our third drawing, from a transcendent God who has knowledge and power and agency over all things. And then finally, the nail in the coffin, verse 28 here, God actually speaks. Again, that's something only a being with personhood can do. Job 28, 28, and he said to the human race, Fear the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to shun evil is understanding. Now here's Job's point. There's only one place to look for wisdom when you're suffering, and that is to the source of wisdom itself, to the one who created everything, to the one who looked at wisdom, who appraised it, who confirmed it, who tested it. And so if you want to know where to go in your suffering for wisdom, don't try and reason it out. Because very often you won't ever find the reason. Don't look to technology because despite all our great capabilities, we'll never uncover it. Look to the source of wisdom himself, the God who established, who measured, who made everything that we see. So that's point one. But we have to go further because even knowing the source of wisdom, it's still not enough to get you through the suffering. Now, most of you have experienced this. You've gone to God. You're in the midst of suffering, and you cry out to him. The source of wisdom. And yet the suffering is still there. So now what? What do we do? What do we do with the pain of suffering? Um, that's point two. Uh, most of you know that for years, I mean, I lived uh, in England, and I, I love British culture. I love the people. I even love the food. Um, thank you. Um, I, but there is one thing that always drove me crazy about living in that culture, and that is how they park their cars. Now, you know, you and I, we typically will follow the law. And the law says, you know, you have to park on the street and you have to park in the direction of travel of that side of the street. That, by the way, is the law in England. However, literally nobody follows it. So parking looks like this. Go to that next slide there. Um, these are cars just parked on the sidewalk uh, any which direction they would like. Some of them more out in the street, some of them less out in the street. There's no like, hey, let's line this up and have some order to it, okay? This used to drive me insane. And when I was driving for a while, you know, you turn down the street and you're driving on the other side of the road and you'd see a car parked in the wrong direction. You have this immediate panic in your head of like, am I going the wrong way on the wrong side? I don't know, I don't know what I'm doing. And that's, that's parking in England. Now, uh, a couple years into our time there, we had a weekend off, and so we went to Geneva, Switzerland. And we land in Geneva, Switzerland, and the next morning, uh, it's early in the morning, we're going out, walking the streets, looking for a coffee shop, and we turn down this street. Oh, and by the way, one, go one more slide. This, this often happens as well. That's not uncommon in England. Anyway, 
We're, yeah. The British people in the room are laughing because that's where their car is right now. That's actually their car. Um, we're, we're in Switzerland. It's a beautiful Saturday morning. The sun is shining. The birds are chirping. We turned down a street. And I said to Emmy, just stop for a minute. She's like, what's wrong? I was like, I just need to take this in. Because every car was parked perfectly in its little spot, perfectly spaced with the car in front of it, exactly how it should be, ordered, perfect. Um, a little bit like this one. And I could rest. Now here's what that's illustrating. Here's what that's illustrating. We know that there is an order to things. And that's what the book of Proverbs is actually about, that if you, if you do this, then the result will be this. That's the order of things. And by the way, on this, if you look really close on this picture, there is one car parked backwards, and this is a picture in Geneva, Switzerland, and that just shows you that even when there's order, sometimes there's not. But here's, here's what the book of Proverbs teaches us. You know, in Proverbs 10.4, it says things like, lazy hands make for poverty, but diligent hands bring wealth. And that's talking about the order of things. So it's saying, you know, if you work hard, then you'll make money. If you don't work hard, you'll become poor. That's the order of things. Or Proverbs eleven seventeen: 17, uh, those who are kind benefit themselves, but the cruel bring, bring ruin on themselves. And what that's saying is, you know, be kind, and it will end up benefiting. Other people will be kind back to you. If you're cruel, then people will be cruel back. That's the order of things. There's an order to things. Even the book of Proverbs, by the way, does end up admitting that that order is broken. About half of Proverbs is about how to live in light of that broken order. But you see, we often do the things, the things, uh, the good things. We, we, we often live according to the order, but then we don't get what we expect in an ordered universe, and what instead we get is suffering. You work hard, but you're still poor. You're kind, but you receive cruelty. And then to make matters worse, you look out at the world and you're like, hey, all those people that aren't working very hard, they seem to have all the money. And all those people that are really cruel to other people, they seem to be getting all the kindness from people. And that's, by the way, the difference between parking in England and parking in Switzerland. Because if you're in Switzerland, things are ordered, put into nice little rows that actually causes you to put your guard down to relax, to find peace. At least it did for me. On the other hand, if you're parking in England, you know there should be order. You know what the law says. But that order is broken, constantly broken. And what does it do? It causes stress and anxiety and suffering. So here's the point. If you want a reason for human suffering, this is it. We live in an ordered universe and yet that order is broken. And when the order breaks, that's when we suffer. That is the reason for all human suffering. Even death itself is a breaking of the original order of things. Now what that means is, much of the suffering that we experience will not go away. Cancer isn't going anywhere. Car accidents aren't going anywhere. Broken marriages aren't going anywhere. Crime, abuse, these things aren't going anywhere anytime soon. And the reason we feel the suffering in any of those situations or ones like it is because we know that we live in an ordered universe. 
if this, then that. And yet that order is broken. And this is the base reason for all of human suffering. So the question then becomes, what do we do with the pain of that suffering? That suffering that isn't going away. And there's at least two things. One is we lament to God. And the Bible gives us language for lamenting, and it shows us where to take our laments. I was talking with someone in our church this week about Psalm 13. And Psalm 13, that's something that we pray all the time as a church. If you've been here more than one time, maybe two times, you'll recognize this prayer from Psalm 13. It goes like this. How long, Lord? Will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? And isn't that, isn't that suffering? Isn't that person expressing the suffering that they're going to? And every week in our service, we take time to petition God. We, we offer our petitions and our, our, their, their laments to God because we do that because something in our ordered universe is out of order. It's broken, it's marred, it's messed up. And so therefore, you or someone you know, or maybe someone you've never met on the other side of the world, is suffering. But even a cursory reading of the Bible will show you that bringing our suffering to God, lamenting to him, is something that God invites. And it's something that he responds to. About two-thirds of the book of Psalms are laments. Think about that. Two out of every three psalms, there's 150 of them, two out of every three, a hundred of them, are laments. A way of expressing your suffering to God. And so one of the things that we can do with our pain is just shout it back to God. Cry it back to him, groan it to him. And he cares. So one thing we can do with the pain of our suffering is, is we, we express that pain back to God. The other thing we can do is look to the future. We look to the future hope that we have in God. And, and sometimes what we have to do with our suffering is recognize and admit that we live in an ordered world that is broken, where the order is broken. And all that we can do in this life with the suffering that we're never going to get an answer for is look forward to the next life where that order is restored. Sometimes all we can do with the pain of our current suffering is look forward to the day when all suffering will be gone. You know, another place in the Bible where sufferers pray that prayer from Psalm 13, where they pray, how long, O Lord, is Revelation 6. In the last book of the Bible, it says this, Revelation 6, verse 10. They, and these are sufferers, by the way, they, the sufferers, they called out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? Then each of them was given a white robe, and they were told to wait a little longer until the full number of their fellow servants, their brothers and sisters, were killed just as they had been. Now, this is fascinating because they pray their lament, but they're told to wait a little longer. And not only do they have to wait, but there's more suffering to come while they wait. But at the end of the waiting is this future hope. Over in Revelation 21, there's a description of what it will be when God puts everything back to order. Where there won't be any more disorder, there won't be any more suffering. You know this well, Revelation 21, verse 3. Look, 
God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the what? The old order. The old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Now think about that. Think about, just, let's just take two categories of suffering. Let's say one is loneliness. You're suffering because you're lonely. Do you know what the promise is? That God's going to dwell with you. That you're going to dwell perfectly with his people forever. That's the future hope. Say one is poverty. Say, say you're poor. You know what the promise is? The future promise is that God has a home for you to live in. That everything you need is going to be yours. And so here's all I can really offer for the suffering that can't be alleviated. That you'll never get a reason for in this life. This is all I can offer you. Allow this current suffering to be fuel for your future hope in the new heavens and the new earth. The suffering you don't have an answer for, it's fuel for a future hope. And I know to many of you, that's not a satisfying answer. But if you and I can come to grips with what we discussed in point one, that all of wisdom finds its source in God alone, then you can begin to get there. And I'll tell you at the end how you can get all the way there when we look at what suffering has accomplished for us. But sometimes all our current suffering is is fuel for our future hope. Now, two more points, and I'm only going to touch on them very briefly because let's be honest, sitting through a long sermon is a certain kind of suffering. And so far we've seen, one, where to find wisdom in the midst of suffering. Secondly, what to do with the pain of suffering. And now thirdly, what suffering accomplishes in us. And in a sense, this is what we've talked about each week so far, that the more we persevere in doing what we know to be right and true, the more we become wise. But we said at the beginning that a person needs wisdom to get through suffering, but at the same time, suffering produces more wisdom. And Romans 5.3 probably expresses this better than any place in the Bible. And just before this verse, by the way, uh, the Apostle Paul's writing this, and he actually says, uh, get this, he says, we boast in the hope of the glory of God. We boast in the hope of the glory of God. And that seems like a great thing to boast in. Of course, yeah, I, I boast in the hope of the glory of God. Then verse 3, not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings. Because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character hope. And we've been saying that wisdom is doing the right thing over and over and over again. In other words, it's persevering. But isn't that just another way of talking about a person's character? Your character is what you do. Especially what you do when you're under pressure or when nobody's looking. That's what your character is. But isn't that just the same as a person's wisdom? Your character and wisdom, they're, they're the same thing, or they're at least two sides of the same coin. And what this is saying is, Suffering produces wisdom. And so here's the point. If we can suffer well, then our suffering actually produces wisdom. That's, the, that's what it accomplishes in us. But the only way that it does that is by the bookends. 
Did you notice the bookends in these verses? You start by boasting in the glory of God. You know, what's wisdom's way of saying that? It's the fear of the Lord. But the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That's the one bookend. So you start with the fear of the Lord. You start by boasting in the glory of God. In other words, the way to become wise as a result of your suffering is to continue to fear the Lord, continue to love him, to turn to him, to honor him in your suffering. That's the one bookend. The other bookend is at the end of verse 4, and it's that word hope. That's what we've been talking about. Allow your current suffering to fuel your future hope. And so if in your suffering you can live between those two bookends, the fear of the Lord and the hope in the Lord, then what your suffering will accomplish in between those two bookends is wisdom. It will make you wise. That's what suffering accomplishes for us, in us, sorry. That's what will make you wise. Now, fourth, I told you these are brief. What suffering accomplished for us. And there's a place earlier in the book of Job where he's actually able to step back and contemplate the future hope that we talked about. Uh, And here's what he says, Job 19, uh, verse 25. He says, I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end he will stand on the earth and after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. The weird verse, very hard to translate. In the middle of this suffering, of his suffering, he actually stops and he contemplates his future hope. His future hope is in God as his, his redeemer. And it's a little bit obscure, but when he says that his redeemer, that God will stand on the earth, what he's saying is that God will come and vindicate him. God will come and put right everything that went wrong. In other words, he will put the order back together. Because remember, his whole life has been thrown into disorder even though he'd done all the right things, all that order broken. And then notice this in verse 26, when he says, after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. (laughs) It's a weird verse. But what he's talking about is actually a resurrection. He's saying that after he dies, he will see God. Now, of course, Job is 100% right, that God will stand on the earth and put everything back to order. He will rise from the dead and see God face to face. But at the point in history that Job is saying this, he only has a partial view. He's only got a partial view, but, but we have the whole view. Because, of course, God did come, and he did stand on the earth as a redeemer. That Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, he stood on the earth. And here's what it says about him. We just looked at this verse in our men's group this past Wednesday, Galatians 3.13. It says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole. Now what that's saying is, not only is Christ our redeemer, the redeemer actually that Job looked forward to, the vindicator, but it says that he redeemed us through suffering, immense suffering. And that's what it's saying when it says, cursed is everyone who's hung on a pole. The pole, of course, is the cross. And when Jesus Christ was on the cross, he took upon himself the disorder of our world. And just like Job, who who did not deserve suffering, he deserved it the least, he suffered the most. Jesus Christ, who deserved suffering the least, he suffered the most. And that's the curse. More than that, when Jesus Christ suffered, he, 
Not only did he suffer physically, he he didn't have God the Father to turn to, to lean upon. Because in that moment, the only time in all of eternity, Jesus Christ was experiencing utter disorder because at that moment he was completely separated from God the Father. He was God forsaken in that moment. And so going through that suffering, the physical suffering, the emotional suffering, the spiritual suffering, that is how Jesus Christ redeemed us. I mean, what is redemption? What is it to redeem something? It's an exchange. It's a payment. It's an atonement. It's to make something that was wrong right again. And the suffering of Jesus Christ on the cross, that's what accomplishes our salvation from disorder, from the disorder of our sin. The very creator of order itself experienced utter disorder as he hung on the cross. But Job points to that good news because what does he say? I know that my Redeemer lives. That Jesus Christ went through the disorder of death and rose from the dead to bring all order back back to us again. And because he did that, it means that you and I can say along with Job in Job 19, I know that my Redeemer lives. And that in the end, he will stand on the earth. He will be raised from the dead. And he will come back and he will put everything right when he puts foot on this earth again. And after my skin, my flesh has been destroyed, in my new flesh, I will see God. You see, to anyone who humbles themselves like Job and admits their need for a redeemer, anyone who trusts in Jesus Christ as their redeemer, anyone who can say that can say, I know that my redeemer lives. And even though I die, I will see him one day when he's put everything right. That person is saved. That person has the future hope. And they are saved precisely because of the suffering that Jesus Christ accomplished for them. That's what it is to have a redeemer. You want a redeemer? You want an ultimate hope that no matter how harsh the suffering, Jesus Christ, the Redeemer, will one day put his foot on the earth and put it right again? And say along with Job, I know that my Redeemer lives. Put your faith in Christ. Put your hope in him. Now, did we solve all your suffering? Did I solve it for you? Of course not. (laughs) No, we didn't do that. But maybe wisdom will feel a little bit less elusive right now in the midst of your suffering. Because I hope you can see now that the wisdom of suffering is actually to suffer wisely. To not turn your back on God in the face of your suffering, but instead to look to him, to lament to him, to look to him as your future hope. And the kicker is, in doing that, you'll become more wise. Wisdom won't be elusive, it will be given to you. But if you suffer wisely, the outcome of your suffering will always be more wisdom. And that's the wisdom of suffering. You need wisdom to get through suffering, but also if you suffer wisely, you'll become even more wise. Let's pray. Father, some of us are suffering. Some of us don't know why we're suffering, and maybe we'll never know why. But Lord, help us not to look to 
reason. Help us not to look to human advancement. Help us look to you, the source of wisdom. And Lord, in doing that, would you give us a place to direct our pain? Would you give us a place to direct our hope? And Lord, as we suffer wisely, would you make us more wise? We ask it in Jesus' name.